I was sitting here this morning and I was thinking, um, you know, each of us kind of have like a little bubble probably in our minds where we're maybe thinking about this and the other person's thinking about this. And, um, but you know, we're all gathered here together and we're worshiping one God. And I think that's important. And I hope our mind is focused on the Lord and we can draw our attention towards the Lord. So we sang a song, Tony. I appreciate you leading that. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and we've been sitting for a while, and I'd like for you to stand up, turn around, and answer this question, finish this question. I know that my Redeemer liveth because, and tell the person beside you or behind you that. Okay, so let's stand up and tell the person behind you or beside you, I know that my Redeemer liveth because whatever you have to say. We sang in verse 2, I know that his promises never fail. I know that my Redeemer liveth because his promises never fail. Um, But yes, that's uh, important that we think about that. So uh, this morning, two days ago, I wasn't planning on standing up here and giving a message, but very easily, I guess, could have been up here and we could be, have a funeral service or something like that. Just really thankful that, uh, as Jamin said also, thankful that that uh, God spared their lives and, and just pray for speedy recovery for Burl and Jerry and their uh, relatives. So this morning, I'm going to be looking at a, a subject that's sort of complex. It's a, a little bit, um, could be controversial in a way, I guess, but... It's in, it's, if you want to look at it, it's in our, uh, it's the 14th article in our church covenant, and it's that of apostasy. So as we take a closer look at this subject, my goal is to bring more clarity to the subject as well as to provoke our thoughts and actions to a closer walk with God. Because as I talk about apostasy, there's, there's nuances and of differing theologies that that can quickly derail our spiritual growth and concept of who God is. And that's not my goal, is to derail and to confuse us and and to, you know, just confuse our thoughts about that. And like I said, there there is differing theologies about that. Um, But interesting enough, the, the word apostasy isn't found in the Bible. Of course, when I, when I, had this subject, I, I went to the Bible and looked in the dictionary. Uh, there, there's, the word's not in the Bible. But the concept is, the closest word in meaning used in the Bible would probably be the word traitor. You might think of another word that would be similar to apostasy, but I think traitor would probably be the closest word in meaning to apostasy. And that, that's used in reference to Judas in Luke 6.16 and also in 2 Timothy 3.4. 
a traitor differs with apostasy in that a traitor is giving something to the enemy, which in a sense is what an apostate person does. They, they give of themselves to the enemy. I believe that it's really paramount that the concept of the, over, the overarching uh, sovereignty of God is strong and unwavering in us before we look at apostasy. So I'd, I'd like to start with the concept of the sovereignty of God first before we look at apostasy. So the sovereignty of God is a term we use to express how God is the supreme ruler, period. He is the supreme ruler. God is, and he's the source of our being, and he always will be, and he always was. To deny that God is sovereign is the same as saying that I am God, if you stop and think about it. God's sovereignty, it gives, us, gives me security because without God's sovereignty, where would my faith and my trust be? In a more personal way, you know, we, we can kind of snuggle up to God kind of like a child does to his parents, knowing that, that God's going to lead us and has every situation in control as you think about God's sovereignty. And I really like, uh, Chad described this in a really good way a couple months ago when he was describing Isaiah's description of God, where he describes, Isaiah describes every nation as a drop in the bucket or just as dust on the scales in comparison to God. And you'll find, if you want to read about the description of God in uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 to 17, it's a worthwhile read to just read that about who, uh, how great God is in comparison to us. Like I said, we're just like a drop in the bucket, or the nations are like a drop in the bucket, or like the dust on scales. Really, uh, we, we serve a great God. But yet God, in all his supremacy, all his sovereignty, he's given us man the power of choice. So from the beginning of man's time in the Garden of Eden to now, we can choose good or evil. The way, you know, of course we know that Adam and Eve, they chose the wrong, made a wrong choice in the Garden of Eden. We can choose the narrow way or the broad way, the broad, easy way. And it's through these choices that we can choose either life eternal or eternal damnation by the choices that we make. And the fact that God is, another word that we use is his omniscience, the fact that God is omniscient and knows the future, as 1 John 3.20 says, that shouldn't scare us from deciding to make a choice one way or the other. Because that, that can, that's, can scare us to make a choice because it's like, if God knows the future, why should I make a decision one way or the other? But that, that shouldn't scare us. <clears throat> To know that God has chosen us to have salvation from the beginning of time, as 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, is very reassuring, but we also, we, we need to choose God. He has chosen us as people, but we also need to choose God. In a way, God's sovereignty, it's, it's kind of uncomprehensible to us, at least it is to me as I think about it. Um, 
it's somewhat of a mystery, just as his infinite ways are kind of hard to grasp when you think of the infinity of God. You know, we, we can't grasp in infinity. And it's a little bit that way for me, at least, as I think of God's sovereignty and his, his greatness. But the fact remains that God desires all men to come to him and to be saved. That's in 1 Timothy 2, 4, where it says, it says that, and the, the choice is ours. And many of us today, you know, we, we've chosen to follow Jesus. And I pray that none of us here will choose to turn our backs on Jesus and to openly, to openly deny the Christ that we know and that we've experienced. To do that is to be apostate. Apostasy, when I looked up the definition, is the abandonment of a former allegiance, which, when, as you know, if you serve Christ and, and you abandon that, that's apostasy. It's the act of a professing Christian who openly and knowingly and deliberately rejects the deity of Christ and of the redemption of Jesus' atoning sacrifice. And so I'd like, like to really emphasize that again. It's when a person knowingly and he openly and deliberately rejects Christ and the redemption of Jesus' atoning sacrifice. So the book of Hebrews brings us out in Hebrews 10, verse 26, and we're going to look at several portions in Hebrews, but I'm going to use Hebrews 10 as a, my main reference point. So turn with me uh, to Hebrews 10, verse 26 to 31. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, and I'll read down to 31. <clears throat> For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So verse 26 by itself, you know, it, it could really be a depressing verse if, if that was the only verse you had of the Bible. Things like that could kind of be a depressing verse. But it needs... It need not be as we focus on following Jesus and putting him first and seeking after Jesus. As, as we do those things, that verse doesn't need to be a depressing verse. Does that mean that, you know, we need to be really careful to never fail? I, I don't think that's what that's saying. Does that mean that if we make a wrong choice, I'm eternally damned forever? I don't think that's what it's saying either. Because God's 
grace, his mercy and forgiveness is, is extended even to those that deny Christ. Like, take for example, um, Peter, for example, one of Jesus' very own disciples. We know that he denied our Lord three times in succession. Was that it for Peter? Was he done? No. I mean, we, we know as we read the Bible that it's noted in several of the Gospels how remorseful Peter was and how he wept bitterly when he realized what he had done. That's in Matthew 26, verse 75. There, there was remorse on his part, and we know that God granted him forgiveness because Peter, you know, he went on to encourage the church, and he was actively involved in the church in the future after that. So we know that God, even though Peter denied Jesus three times, we know that God uh, forgave him and that, you know, Peter sought forgiveness. Then we have another of Jesus' own disciples, Judas, on the other hand, also betrayed Jesus' trust in him, denied Jesus, but Judas was unable to come to peace with himself, which I'm sure our Lord would have granted him if he had repented and submitted his will to Christ. You know, it's sad, though, in Matthew 27, verse 3, it tells us that Though he repented, it's, it says there in Matthew 27, 3, that, that Judas did repent. Though he repented, he didn't continue to walk with Christ. Instead, instead he went out and he hung himself. And I believe that it, it would have been very possible for Judas to continue to walk with Christ, even though Judas betrayed his Lord and played a part in fulfilling a prophesied foreordained plan that was prophesied would happen in Zechariah 11 verses 12 and 13. It was prophesied that this was going to happen, but I, I still believe that Judas, uh, he, he could have come back to Christ. Remember, God is sovereign, and with him nothing is impossible. And I'm going to come back to that thought of nothing being impossible to God in just a little bit. So how does apostasy happen? I think it happens like most things. As with most things, you know, it doesn't happen just overnight. It happens gradually. You know, we have the gradual indoctrination of society, you know, by the wicked people around us. You know, that, and, and if we allow those things into our lives, <clears throat> you know, they, they affect us and they will affect us. So that's why, you know, we need to be very diligent in rooting out those things. Things like Timothy talked about in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. He talks of the seducing spirits, the doctrines of devils, the hypocrisies, and having a seared conscience. They, they will, it, it says there in 1 Timothy 4, verse 2, that those things will cause us to depart from the faith. That's in Timothy's words. Then Timothy gets even more specific in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, where he specifies as to what we need to be aware of. Um, and he goes, in, um, goes into several different directions there. Um, Peter adds to the list in 2 Peter 2, verse 10, of things that we need to root out so that apostasy doesn't happen. So as I read those three sections of uh, 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, 
and 2 Peter 2.10, I counted 25 different things that these verses tell us that will lead us astray from God, things that will cause us to become apostate. So as we willingly and knowingly and deliberately do these things, they will cause us to fall away, as 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and Hebrews 6, 6 says. And this especially is going to happen, the Bible tells us, is going to happen in the last days. To be able to fall away, you first have to attain, if you think about that, the apostate person must first attain to be able to fall away. So hopefully you're beginning to get the picture of what an apostate person is. We use the term a backslider or backsliding. It's used today for a person that's lost ground or is slipping in his Christian faith. And the word backslider is really an Old Testament term that's used by God and his prophets. It's not used in the New Testament, but the word, the term fall away is used, which would be you know, very similar to backsliding. Fall away is, is mentioned in several places, like in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and Hebrews 6, 6, as I mentioned earlier. Then Paul also uses a similar phrase in 2 Timothy 4, 10, where he refers to Demas as forsaking me, having loved the present world. And it's interesting to follow Demas's story. He's only mentioned by name uh, three times, Demas is, in the New Testament. And you'll find him mentioned in Colossians 4.14, where it says Demas was one of those that sent greetings to the Colossians. And then um, he's mentioned in 2 Timothy, but then I'm going to skip down to, he's also mentioned in Philemon 24, where he's refer, referred to as a fellow laborer. And then last in 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says that Demas has forsaken him. And that's the last you hear of him, of Demas, you know, that he's forsaken him. So if you would follow scriptures consecutively, you know, you have Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus and Philemon. Demas was in, so to speak, we could say he was, you know, of the faith, he was in in Colossians. He, he was, um, you know, he, he was sending greetings to the Colossians. And then he was out in 2 Timothy. It says, Paul said that you know, Demas had forsaken him. And then he was back again in Philemon. And so I, I was looking at that a little bit. Um, you know, did, did Demas come back to the faith it's, it's very possible, though it, it, it's thought that Colossians and Philemon, they were written at the same time, even though you know, they're not written in consecutive order. And then 2 Timothy was written in, uh, well, Colossians were, and Philemon were written in 62 to 63 AD, and 2 Timothy was written in 66 AD, according to what I read. So according to that, you know, it would have been... Uh, We'd be left with the thought that that Demas was had had left Paul or had, had left um, get out, um, had forsaken him. 
So regardless of whether we know for sure if Demas came back to the faith, we know that God is sovereign and nothing is impossible for him. I'd like for you to turn now to uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 and 6. I'd like to read a couple verses there. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. You know, we, we tend to kind of overlook and read over portions of Scripture like this right here. But since we're talking about apostasy and, and these verses do apply, I think we need to give it honest attention and take a look at it and try to understand, you know, what these verses are saying. You know, for a person to willfully, notice it says willful, for a person to willfully and directly turn their back on Christ, you know, Jesus, whom you once believed and trusted in, you know, that, that's very serious, according to these verses right here. Remember that God is each of our judges. You know, he alone is the one, as, as we read in Hebrews 10 towards the end there, I believe it was 31, talks about God being our judge. God alone is the one that truly knows our heart's desires and our intentions and he's going to be the one, alone is going to be the one that is going to judge the world and, and in the future. So it's important, the impossibility of returning to Christ, I think, lies on the part of man and not on the part of God. Because with God, nothing is impossible. When, when a person scornfully rejects his only way to salvation... That of God drawing us to him through the work of his Holy Spirit, that person who is rejecting God is also rejecting his Holy Spirit and his promptings that he gives us. He then removes himself from the only thing and the one that draws us and leads us to repentance and to restoration. So it's, it's, it's very serious when, when we reject the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit, and we reject God. And that's why it's so important to not spurn and turn our backs on, on God's Spirit, as mentioned in Matthew 12, verse 31 and 32. And then John 6, 44, and John 12, 32, there's some verses that talk of God drawing us to him. So I was trying to, as I was thinking about that concept of God drawing us to him, uh, put, putting that together, it, it all comes back to um, there, there, there's really no other way than, than just totally submitting ourselves to God. Unless that scornful person repents of his wrong, you know, they, they cannot be renewed. And to stop there, like I said, is, is kind of depressing. But 1 Timothy 2, verse 4 tells us that it's 
God's will that all men should be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, these words in Hebrews 6, they were written, they were written for encouragement to the church in Hebrews, the Hebrew church there. They were written to exhort the Christians. And notice in verse 6 that it says, those that fall away. It doesn't say those that fall. There's a big difference. Um, so, so be encouraged. It's, it's not talking, uh, you know, we are going to fall. If we're honest, all of us would admit to falling in one way or another. God's not turning our, our back on us if we mess up. He's not saying, okay, you've messed up, you're done. Because God longs to extend mercy and grace to the repentant believer. Hebrews 4.16 says to come boldly to the throne of grace that we might attain mercy and that we might find grace to help in time of need. The apostate person can't do that because they've crucified the Son of God again and put him to open shame, and they no longer have that communication with God. So we see that from, man, from man's standpoint, it seems impossible for an apostate man to come to Christ. But as I thought about it, I, th I, th I think there is hope because when when Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler in Luke 18, verses 18 to 27, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. So we, you know, when we read those verses, you know, we theorize then that since it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, so also it's impossible for a rich man to get into heaven. And it's true, worldly possessions are a barrier to the heaven-bound person. You know, that, that's another topic in itself. But Jesus then encourages us by saying, the things that are impossible to men are possible with God. The things that are impossible to men are impossible with God. So as we think about our sovereign God, I think it is possible that he might direct the backslider or the apostate person back to himself again and to restore him back to a loving relationship with himself. One thought yet from the church of Thyatira, if you remember there when I talked about that a couple Sundays ago, Jesus was admonishing them to not allow the doctrine of Jezebel into their church in Revelations 2, verse 20. And definitely there was some in in the church there that had backslid in the church of Thyatira because Jesus said that he gave, he gave or offered her, the church, space to repent. He was giving them room to repent. And I think space is grace. There's probably a whole lot more that we could talk about, um, but I'd like to close with James chapter 4, verse 8, where it says... Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you.